welcome. It's Jane Alexander from the Women Count podcast. This is a podcast for women and by women designed to discuss the skills and experiences of inspiring female leaders and data scientists. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Prue Gordon, an industry leader in trade and the executive director of the Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment, ACITI. Prue has a distinguished and unique career working in all aspects of trade. Prue has worked in academia, has represented Australia in Washington as the first Secretary of Trade, worked back in Australia advising a number of our trade ministers, supported industry bodies, and finally has leveraged her many years of first-hand experience to establish a city. It should also be noted that all of this work has been done at the same time that Prue has consistently volunteered for and supported many different community groups. The aim of this podcast was to learn more about the current issues in trade, as well as understand more of the role of a CT. However, I found myself learning so much more outside of our planned discussions. Some of the additional things we talked about included how we should be grateful for the abundance of goods and services that we get easy access to because of international trade. I was reminded about not taking life and being healthy for granted based on Prue's first-hand experience in the aged care industry, the importance of setting goals and having a bigger picture to work towards, and also why it's critical for all of us to be involved with our community in order to protect the very privileged way of life we have. And finally, I'd like to give a very big shout out to the National Farmers Federation. I was so encouraged to hear about their efforts to balance the gender makeup of their organisation and their leading edge approach to actively empowering and supporting women to excel in senior leadership roles. We covered so much in our short podcast and I cannot wait for you to hear from the incredibly talented, dedicated and thought-provoking Dr. Prue Gordon. Good morning, Dr. Gordon, and welcome to the Women Count podcast. Thank you so much, Jane. It's fantastic to be here. Oh, and thank you so much for making it to the studio this morning. No problem at all. It's a little bit of a journey, but we got here in the end. Great. Thank you. We've had so much to talk about, and uh, you have such a broad career, and I'm really looking forward to delving into that in, in a bit of detail. Let's talk about what you're currently doing. So you're currently the Executive Director for ACT. So can you explain the role of ACT and why it was developed? So ACT is very new. We've really only got running in July 2022. It exists to really increase awareness in Australia of the importance of international trade and investment to our way of life, to our economy, to the jobs that that we undertake here in Australia. I think it was started because I think there's a real taking for granted of how embedded Australia is in the global economy and how important it is to so many things that we take for granted. So we started it for that purpose, to increase awareness, but also having worked in international trade, policy making in particular and advocacy for almost almost hate to say it, almost 30 years, there was, there seemed to me and some others, real siloing between government, business, academic, civil society groups. And we wanted to create a forum where 
people working on and in international trade and investment could come together more regularly to talk about the really important issues facing our country in, in that area of international trade and investment. So it's it exists to really break down those silos, to encourage more debate and discussion, but also to get information out to the public that's not technical, that explains a whole range of topics and issues and questions related to international trade and investment. Mm-hmm. So that's what a CT aims to do. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, we've just begun, sort of got up and running in July last year, but um, we sort of do that in four different ways. The first one is a CT info on our website. We've got non-technical information. That resource is still at the beginning. We've got a lot of work still to do to build that resource, but that's aimed at the general public. Um, secondly, a CT forum that includes our conference, webinars, Chatham House roundtables, then a CD research that's really engaging with the academics in Australia working on international trade and investment, and then a CD services is how we fund ourselves, which is usually the first question I get asked. Um, We provide sort of bespoke research and analysis services for for a fee. So that's sort of what a CD is and what we do. Okay. And I can see that all the the background you've had through um, your academic background, through your advisory background, it has all come together to to enable you to do that role. Absolutely. I'm getting to just understand the trade industry in Australia and I'm certainly scratching the surface, but but I think the thing that sticks out for me is how complex the whole system is how many different stakeholders there are and how difficult it is to create change. On one level that's true, but on another level it's sort of simple because it's when we talk about the international trade system, it's basically what we do within Australia, buy and sell in goods, services, intellectual property, but internationally. And in one on one level that's the same as what we do within Australia. It's just companies and businesses and consumers all engaging in this this market. But when you apply it internationally, there's there's a whole range of additional issues that impact on that market. So things, different regulatory issues, different consumer preferences, different impacts in terms of how you can set up a business, how you can invest in other countries, the kinds of goods you can sell, the kinds of regulations that you have to comply with. So it is more complex in terms of that um, that additional the additional number of issues a business needs to take into account when it trades internationally. But on the other hand, it's sort of what's basically it's it's the exchange of goods and services and and ideas out there in the market, um, but but applied internationally. But yeah, there are a lot of people involved, and and as I said before, we find a lot of people tend to work in their own little sites. So businesses will talk to businesses. Government tries to engage and support. Academics try and and analyze and and provide data to back up different policy positions. And then there's civil society groups who are putting a lens over a whole range of issues that relate to the global market and seeing how they impact on society mm-hmm. more broadly. So one hand simple on that, yes, you're probably right, it's, it can be quite complex. Well, I suppose the thing is we've, we've traded ever since our country was developed. So you, you mentioned, you know, that's quite, then I suppose that process is quite simple. 
that we have traded for a long time. It's mm. just that it seems to have got complex because of all those key stakeholders. And Yes. Can you tell me, say, the top three or four key issues that you think as a country, um, I suppose as the government of our country, that they need to address to improve our trade position? We're in a really interesting time. Five years ago, I would have said the key issues were really focused on how to reduce barriers in other countries to Australian products. But because of what's happening geostrategically around the world, because of China's rise, because of the tensions between the US and China and the decisions that both of those countries are making to effectively protect their national security, that's having an impact on the global market in really profound ways. National security considerations now are very much trumping normal commercial decision-making and and the kinds of policies that would have supported open markets. So things like subsidising businesses to be able to develop goods that are needed for national security. Um, So... Still, for example, President Trump introduced restrictions on the import of steel to protect US capacity to make steel. Now, you'd think steel's a pretty common product. So even seeing policy decisions made for national interest reasons are fundamentally impacting the global market. So in terms of a key issue for the Australian government at the moment is how do we meet both our national security needs as well as maintain open markets because open markets are fundamental to the wealth of Australia, to the way, to Australian way of life. But there's a huge tension there at the moment. And I think that's probably the first one, two, three and four top issues that the government needs to be addressing at the moment because it's such a fundamental change from where we were not that long ago, but also because it's such a hard question. How do you both protect our national security without cutting off markets, which essentially cuts Mm. off access to to wealth and our ability to grow economically, which in turn impacts our national security. So that's that's the big one at the moment. Okay, And, and it takes time to let these things roll out and have an impact. But that's the one thing we don't really have. I think what's feeding into considerations at the moment is that there's a real, um, there are a number of developments in the national security space which are causing huge alarm and which are triggering decisions and policies such as, for example, the US introduced the CHIPS Act, which is about developing the US domestic manufacturing capability in high-level, high-end CHIPS Part of that includes cutting off exports of advanced chips and advanced chip manufacturing equipment to China. Now, one person said that's the closest thing to declaring war without actually declaring war. So these actions have just ramped up so radically in the last three, four, five years. To say it takes time to work things out, we just, what countries are finding is we don't have the time. Um, so decisions mm-hmm. are being made very quickly, which again is having major impacts on global markets mm-hmm. in a way that we really haven't seen probably since the Second World War. 
That's a really interesting point. So majority of chip manufacturing is done in Taiwan. So if the US is cutting off um, export to China and with the current unrest, I suppose, between China and Taiwan. It is incredibly aggressive. Um, and it, yes, most of the chip manufacturing is done in Taiwan. The high-level development of chips is done in the Netherlands as well. And the US, Taiwan and the Netherlands have formed an agree agreement to restrict access of these chips to China. So yes, it, it was quite unprecedented. And you can see very it's the it's clearest example where a commercial decision is being implemented for national security grounds, but having huge impact on the chip manufacturing sector. Okay. And and so the impact on Australia, what how do you see that playing out? So we similarly are trying to build our domestic manufacturing capacity in some sensitive sectors. So critical minerals, for example, the government's invested in developing Australia's critical minerals and and in a, building the capacity within Australia to process critical minerals. That's one small area. In many respects, we're sort of really subject to the, the, these much bigger forces and the decisions made by the US and China and Europe were such a small player in so many ways. The real impact for us is how we are going to insert ourselves into some of these critical supply chains. And that it's not really clear how we're going to do that, whether that's so in clean energy and technology supply chains, as well as things like, I mean, chips being subject where we don't really rely on Chips, we don't do a lot of manufacturing here that relies on chips, but it's then it's the broader access to consumer goods. So we're sort of, we're being impacted. We don't have a lot of agency or ability to change the, the geostrategic context in which we find ourselves. So we're, we just have to be incredibly aware of what's going on out there and be ready and, and be mm. able be flexible to be able to adapt to what's coming, coming our way. So as a consumer... Um, what we would see is higher prices and less supply of, of some of the products that we want to consume. That's yes, very likely because mm. China's been such an incredible factory for the world over the last mm. you know twenty years, producing so many goods much more cheaply than we've been able to produce them here or in in the US or Europe mm. um, or Japan because because of the huge manufacturing capacity. So yes, that is absolutely going to impact on Australia if the US and the Chinese are unable to resolve their differences, if they're not able to start reducing some of the barriers they're putting up to each other's trade. There's a term decoupling or the Europeans prefer de-risking, which potentially posits a complete um, you know, split in terms of the Chinese market and the US market in different spheres. It's very hard to see how that could come about considering how dependent we are on China, but we're in really uncharted territory, so where we go from here is really you know, uncertain. Mm, and needs a lot of thought and consideration in Australia. We're an island country and we took our supply chain uh, for granted, but with COVID it certainly was a major shake-up to us in, in terms of where we source our goods, what we get, how, how we go about our lives. 
yeah, it was definitely a major shake-up. Our dependence on the, some of those shipping lines, we were really just getting the the tail end of ships coming our way and that really impacted what consumers could could access. Um, so, yes, it was a wake-up call, but even more significant, I think, is this this shift in the geostrategic context that's going to have even more wide-ranging implications for for the global economy and and Australia as part of it. Mm, Maybe 10 years ago, people wouldn't have thought twice about what we do so much in the trade area, but now it's absolutely, absolutely critical and uh, it's been exposed to so many people. We do try and encourage more discussion and Mm, public debate mm. about these issues so people are aware and businesses and government can make better decisions. A city is a very unique organisation. So, as the managing director, what do you see is the major skills that you need? The key skill, I think, is I'm not even sure if this is a skill. It's identifying what a city's value proposition is. So, while me and the people that work with ACTI see the importance of increasing awareness of international trade and investment. Because Australians largely take it for granted and our lives just roll on without, despite, I mean, COVID was the exception where people were really impacted by supply chain disruptions. It's about how we demonstrate to to all those people working in trade and outside trade, how important it is that that they have this information and how it can help inform their decisions. So it's really about identifying ways to demonstrate the value proposition that a city delivers. Mm -hmm. So how it can help inform decisions, helping our, our key target audiences understand how having information and being in, involved in discussions and debate can help what they do, whether they're a policymaker, whether they're a business, whether they're an industry association, um, and then getting the right people in the room to enable those discussions and that information to come forward to demonstrate that value. So, yeah, I'm not sure... Maybe it's more an instinct than a skill. I'm not quite sure how to describe it. <laughs> that, that was what I was going to ask. Is it something that you learn or is it something that you, you just have? I think it's, I mean, I, I think it comes from having worked in international trade and investment for, as a policymaker, as an advocate for farmers, as a researcher, you know, as a diplomat in Washington. It's just something I've developed over several years and to be frank we're still not 100% sure that we were able to put forward a value proposition yet you know when we're only just over 12 months in Mm. it has surprised me though so the couple of events that we've run the feedback we're getting is really positive you see people's eyes sort of light up when when they're involved in a conversation we we're really determined to bring in people that aren't your usual suspects to all of our conferences and roundtables they're often people working on in quite different areas that have implications for trade investment but don't necessarily always work in trade investment so you bring them together and you get really different kinds of perspectives and views I wanted to talk a little bit about you and how you got 
to the position you're in. So the start of your career, it's more academic focused and uh, you've had um, several tutoring, lecturing positions as well as you were the dean of the Fenner Hall at Australian National University. Um, what do you think were the biggest learnings you had in your life at that stage? For me, it was understanding or being becoming aware of the connection between what happens in international organisations, and for me it was international trade organisations, and what I use to eat my breakfast or what car I drive or what podcast, you know, what piece of music I'm, I'm listening to. Mm-hmm. It was this real awakening of how decisions made by people in Geneva or Washington or Brussels impact on my everyday in a really fundamental way and and as I'm enough said before and how that we just take for granted so much of what influences our lives and how our lives run that there's often a failure to understand that connection so as being an academic teaching on international trade and investment and international political economy really just created this great awareness of the interconnection between these really high-level international decision-making bodies and agreements and my everyday. So eventually you moved away from your academic focus and started with foreign affairs and trade uh, and you had a stint as the first secretary uh, at the embassy, Australian Embassy in Washington. Again, what, was, what drove you to leave the academic career? So I would sit in a lecture room talking to a bunch of students about international negotiations and the different interests and values that inform the negotiations. And But I never actually sat in a negotiating room. I felt like a bit of a fraud, to be honest, like trying to teach people about things I'd never experienced firsthand. And I see there's a real role for people who just are very focused on the, the research and get really into the weeds and, and they, they have such an important place. But for me, I'm someone who feels I need to really get my hands dirty. So I thought I, I, I'd love to sit inside a negotiating room and actually see whether what I'm teaching is actually what happens, whether it's in the ballpark or not. So I applied to Foreign Affairs and Trade, not thinking I'd ever get a job, and they gave me a job which was very generous of them. Um, And so I worked in FTA implementation section and then there's opportunities to go on posting. So I applied for Washington, which, again, you don't think you're ever actually going to get it, and then I got it and that was just incredible because, I mean, Washington is such a powerful centre of or centre of great power, international power, Um, so, yeah, it was about really figuring, getting my hands dirty and, and being involved in what an area and, and a bunch of questions that really fascinated me and what I really wanted to have a far greater understanding of from the applied side as opposed to the mm. theoretical side. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. When you came back from Washington, you still continued your career in the trade area and you worked for ministers in the trade investment area. 
So rather than being research focused, uh, you were in an advisory role. So I'm just wondering if you can talk about what that meant. So something that's underpinned my career has been this desire to try and understand how decisions are made. And working in the department, you don't really get that opportunity. You're very involved in the weeds of policy making and implementation. So I thought when I got back from Washington, I'd go and work for the new trade minister and I applied and in the hope that this is where you it's where the key decisions are made in the trade policy portfolio. So I went and worked initially for Andrew Robb, then Steve Chobo, and then after a gap I worked for Dantine, so three trade ministers. And the role of an advisor, speaking very frankly, is almost as um, a gatekeeper but also very much a support for your minister. So our job is to we're sort of the first port of call for a whole range of briefing from the department on a massive number of issues that are related to the minister's portfolio. But then we engage with a range of stakeholders that want to convey information to the minister. We a bunch of academic work that we read to inform the decision making. And we then have to condense all that information down in a form that's that makes it easy for the minister to be able to understand the key issues and to be able to make decisions. The role of an advisor is fascinating for the perspective it gives you over not not only the portfolio but how decisions are made, how government works, how the role of the public service and departments in decision-making and then how government engages with with stakeholders, broader stakeholders, so business stakeholders and, and community groups and, and just the general public. Um, it's an incredibly privileged job. So I have one more job I wanted to um, talk about before we start wrapping up the, the session. And um, the job before you had, uh, as uh, we started the city, is the General Manager of Trade and Economics for the National Farmers Federation. So, again, this was a whole switch. So it's not academic, it's not government, it's actually uh, influencing back into government. So can you talk about that? Yeah, that was brilliant. And I sort of see it as when you're doing, when you're working as an academic, you look at the world as it out there. You're analysing the world out there. As a public servant, you're, you're talking about, us in terms of the country we're doing work for the good of the country and it's we as a minister again it's it's we again it's doing work for the good of the country as a representative of farmers it's much more about that the personal experience the business conditions that farmers are going through and how you can advocate for outcomes that help them directly so it's I've just these shifting perspectives on my role in terms of supporting whether it's a minister or a farmer. So working with the National Farmers Federation was like, again, another shift, a different perspective, looking at the whole policy world. And that was very much from how it impacts on people's everyday lives and representing those people. While I was there looking after trade and economics, it was during the last drought. So I spent a lot of time on drought policy as opposed to trade policy but just incredible group of people, Australia's farmers. They're 
you know, there's so much hierarchy in public service and in ministerial environments. It's like these people, they'll say it as they feel it and what they think, there is no holding back. People, there's no hierarchy really. It's everyone is in there to help each other and get good outcomes, but people speak very frankly and it was such a refreshing place to work. I really loved working for on behalf of Australia's farmers. Um, it, so it sounds fantastic. It sounds really like good. a great environment. It's a great team. But it, I have to ask you, uh, I mean, historically farming has been very male-dominated. Is it still the case? Or I mean, were you the only female? Not at there all. Or, or? So Fiona Simpson was president of the National Farmers Federation and what a force of nature. Fiona Simpson is such an incredible advocate for her sector and for Australia's farmers, incredibly articulate, but really she knows farming and knows what it's like. So she she's been inspiring. a farmer herself? Absolutely. Okay. Her and uh-huh. her, her husband All right. r- upon the, um, I can't remember, up in northern New South Wales have a big farm. Um, and she's fantastic. But also the NFF were very active in trying to empower and promote women in the agricultural sector to be leaders of the sector and to be advocates for the sector. So they had a diversity program which identified women or people applied and they put them through a a program, I think it was about a six-month program of training and giving them opportunities to experience parliament and decision-making and advocacy and just to empower them and to give them the skills that they need to be advocates for the sector. And there are some unbelievable women in the ag sector who are just, again, powerhouses of passion, who really believe in what they're doing and who, who yeah, just they're so impressive. To save farming is male-dominated these days, it's... I think that's a very big call because there are so many women. And I think there were always women in the past. There were always these partnerships because so many of our farms are family farms. Just now women are speaking up and standing up more than they used to. Yeah, it's it's fantastic to mm. hear that. And mm. it's really encouraging that they've actually proactively gone about that. And the other thing is that they've proactively uh, gone about encouraging women and it's been successful. So really to be commended for the work that they've done. Yes, NFF were great. Yeah. Do a good job. So I just had two personal questions. Your entire career, you've always been employed and that's when you've been uh, studying and and always doing multiple things. You're on committees, um, worked in groups and even when you're studying, like I noticed that you uh, worked as a kitchen hand and a seamstress. I mean, these are hard jobs. And and they're also hard jobs when you're studying and you're time poor and and you in your study you were achieving some of the highest levels possible in your academic work. So, what is it about your work ethic? Yeah, I mean, we born like that. I mean, what is it that makes you want to achieve at those levels? See, I don't feel like I've worked particularly hard or achieved particularly much. To be perfectly honest. I think I started working at 15, and as, as you noted, in a laundry, in, in a nursing home. Um, and I was there working part-time during school and then university. I think I, I love to travel at university. So 
I'd spend the whole year working and saving up and then spend all my money backpacking to different places. That sounds um, great. It was, yeah, amazing, amazing. But, but when you say the kitchen hand and yeah, I imagine sweat and hard environments, so it's not sort of like easy work. No, I don't know. I just it didn't. It, was, it wasn't too physically demanding, but it didn't seem too hard. You know, you're young and getting into it. Really, working in a nursing home really makes you appreciate being young mm. and being youthful. So we'd work from six till three, a Saturday and a Sunday and three o'clock. I'd always want to run home just because I could run home because I'd spent the whole day with, you know, lovely old people who were really at the end of life, so many of them. So it really made me appreciate my youth. But, yeah, it didn't seem hard at the time. It was just what I did. It was just making a bit of money to pay for travel, as I said, or, you know, pay for for things. So I just always, it wasn't a conscious thing. It was just what I did. What you did, what you were born yeah. like that. And, and, and I suppose what what you're saying is you, you had goals and you prepared to work for those goals. Yeah. To yes. get what you wanted. That's true. I've always, I, one of those people that I say, I always have a five-year plan, might change every six months, but I always have a plan. So I'm, because I find I need that to sort of order my my every day and my week. What am I aiming for? What am I doing this for? What's the purpose of this? And how does it help me get to where I want to be? So yeah, I guess that's very true. I'm very goal orientated. So, and the other thing that really stood out to me is that right through your career, since university, you've always been involved in community groups. And I don't think you're just a member. I think you've probably led a lot of community groups or worked on the boards and you still do that now. So I was just curious, what is it about you that you you feel you want to give back to the community? I think we live in a bubble in Australia. We are so lucky. We have really amazing institutions, you know, our political system, respect for the rule of law and I think we're sort of exceptional. I remember going to a dinner in Argentina and one of the people at the dinner who is Argentinian said, you know, people often ask, you know, Australia and Argentina around 1900 were at a similar level of economic development but Australia pushed ahead and Argentina really is struggling he said, what do you think the difference is? And this Argentine, he said, he thinks it's because we're honest, because we're law-abiding, which was sort of telling. But I think we do, the institutions that Australians take for granted every single day, if we don't invest in them and work to support them, then we'll lose them. So for me, I've been very driven by a sense of needing to Identify those institutions that are really important to the to Australia, to what makes us a really successful country to live in, and those institutions that will make us a better country to live in, and to and to value those and to put back into them. Because I think it, unless people are prepared to do that, then we'll lose them. I think we we it's a very fine line between an ordered society and one where 
people don't care for each other or can't care for each other because they haven't got jobs and because they're desperate, because there aren't there isn't great infrastructure or there aren't great systems. There's no rule of law. I think there's a very fine line between those and in Australia we take that for granted and I think that's dangerous. So it's up to all of us to, to give back to ensure that we are able to protect and promote those institutions that make Australia a great place. Well, it's a really interesting point and certainly we have benefited from you feeling like that. So thank you. One last question. So if you could go right back to when you first started university um, and you know what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? Be brave. Be braver than I was because I didn't really become brave till I was about 50. No, until then I doubted that I had anything of value to give. I doubted my abilities. And it wasn't until I turned 50 where it was, you know, this after getting a PhD and having an amazing job and with ministers and travelling overseas, it wasn't until I was 50 where I went, it actually doesn't matter what people think, just do it, just do what you think you need to do it. And I mean, I had always been doing it, but I'd always just had this sense of doubt. And I was always very quiet. You know, I'd barely ever speak in meetings because I thought I'd say something stupid and I didn't know what I was talking about. And and then I turned 15, it was like, actually, just that's and then we started to see it. It's like, what am I doing? I'm starting a think tank. This is ridiculous. It's like, I was like, well, just be brave. Wow. Don't, don't doubt wow. yourself. It's incredible because you have such an amazing career. You're so incredibly qualified for, you know, what you do. And to feel like that as an outsider is I don't know how you could possibly even consider that. But I know as women we do that. And it's so easy to fall into that trap and, and we don't need to. Absolutely. I look at my daughter, she's 23 now, and she's so brave. And I'm so, she's my greatest, my greatest achievement. She's so brave. She's um, wonderful. And that's great if you can pass that on. And I think as women, if we can all pass that on uh, to our daughters, and uh, it, it's a good thing. Absolutely. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. I've learned so much about the trade industry, but it's also been nice um, learning more about you and understanding how you got to, to this position. So thank you very much. No, Jane, thank you so much. Thank you for this podcast. It's just so professional and such a fantastic opportunity for people to come and talk about their experiences it's been fantastic and and uh, we couldn't be professional if we didn't have uh, great people to interview so thank you thank you thank you for listening and tuning in to the women count podcast if you really enjoyed this episode and would like to support us please subscribe to the show and provide a star rating watch out for new episodes on leadership and data science and if you want to connect with the tribe we encourage you to become a member at womeninbigdata.org. Bye-bye for now.